Our world has, has a focus on certain things. Our world tells us that we need to be people who play to our, our strengths. We got we to gotta show ourselves strong out there to one another. We got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We got to make it happen. How many of you have watched that movie that just came out, Jesus Revolution? Come on. It was, it was actually a really good, life-giving, faith-building it stirred up hope in me because what God has done, he can do it again. You know what I'm saying? And so instead of though Jesus revolution, where people are encouraged to lean into Jesus, I mean, that's what happened in the Jesus revolution. It's people coming from all different places, all different walks of life and leaning into Jesus instead of leaning into culture of the day and look what happened. But instead of a Jesus revolution, we find ourselves really in the midst, I would say, of a strength revolution where we're told in our world today, in our culture today, hide your weaknesses and do what? Project your strength. And there's no better place to find that this is truly our culture than social media. Look at social media. Hide your weakness and post your strength. Look, folks, look, world. I got it all together. I got no problems. Everything is great. My life is awesome. Hide your weakness. Project your strength. And then it goes further. Not only hide your weakness, but lean on your own strength. Lean on your own skills. Lean on your own smarts, your own abilities. But even when we try to do that under the surface, there's that still nagging reality that we have weaknesses. How many of you know that? Raise your hand if you know that you got some weaknesses. Well, my goal is by the end of this message, everybody will be raising your hands. You know what I'm saying? And it'll be an uplifting message, but it'll be a message where we come back into an understanding that y'all, we're weak. We've got weakness. We're not all that in a bag of chips. We just aren't. Today, our Mission 27 journey is, which is, you know, our journey through the 27 books of the New Testament. It's going to remind us to let go and let God. So many of you have been holding on so tight, you've been trying so hard, and you're so tired, and you've been through the ringer, and life is chewing you up and spitting you out. My prayer is that as we talk about Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, that you're going to learn once again how to let go and let God, that you're going to be reminded that real strength doesn't come from yourself, it comes from God and God alone, and that God's power is actually perfected in our weakness. Now, come on, that's crazy, but it's true. God's power, you want God's power in your life? It's perfected in our weakness. Welcome to the book of 2 Corinthians. Simple, straightforward title, Finding Strength in Weakness. I thought about maybe titling Own Your Weakness. Own Your Weakness. Finding strength in weakness. Today we see the Apostle Paul as this picture of strength, don't we? I mean, how many of you think about the Apostle Paul and you go, that dude is like a spiritual rock star. I mean, he's a hero in the faith. He's a pillar of faith. I mean, God used this guy to plant church after church after church. 
in the very beginning of the New Testament church. The Lord used him. The Holy Spirit spoke through him and gave us half of New Testament scripture through this guy, the Apostle Paul. I mean, you look at this guy, then he was martyred for Christ. I mean, he went all in, all the way. And what do we do today? We look at Paul, we think, this guy was amazing. He was amazing. He was a spiritual giant. Appreciated, admired, but this wasn't always the case. Not when he was living. Maybe this will give you all some hope. Maybe you all are going to feel like, dude, maybe when I die, people will finally realize <laughs> anyway. That's usually when it happens, I'm just saying. And it happened with the Apostle Paul. When he was living, he wasn't looked at as always this spiritual giant and somebody everybody wanted to come in contact with. It definitely wasn't the case in that place called Corinth. And as we read 2 Corinthians, you're going to discover a spiritual giant who's just a guy. Who is, who is dealing with the fact that relationships are Hard. Can I get an amen on that? Relationships are hard and leadership is hard. And here's where it gets really hard. It gets really hard when those that you've been pouring into, those that you've been sacrificing for, don't recognize it. They don't appreciate it. And maybe even ultimately reject you. And I, and I just see some of the faces of parents, even on this Mother's Day, some of the faces of moms who are like, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Paul can relate. And in many ways, this letter of 2 Corinthians is a response to this painful situation that he found himself in. I want to encourage you. What, what, what are we trying to do here in Mission 27? We want to get the bigger picture. What is the bigger picture of God, what God is saying? Book by book, there's, a, there's an understanding. There's, there's a message that God has for you, a perspective, a context that we need to be approaching God's word from. And in this particular context, you have a man, a spiritual giant who's gone all in for Jesus and he's poured out everything he has and everything that he is for this church church and they're just kicking them to the curb read second corinthians from that perspective this week let's talk about this a little bit point number one we're going to find the first seven chapters of second corinthians have to do with christian living let me say this so much of our life is not defined by our mountaintops but rather how we live life in the valleys you want to know what your Christian character looks like? You want to know how close you really are to Jesus? Don't measure it when you're on the mountaintop. Enjoy it when you're on the mountaintop. But measure it when you're walking through that valley of the shadow of death when things are hard and you're being disrespected and you're not being treated fairly and life just hurts. So Paul opens up his letter to this church in Corinth by saying, praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. The one who comforts us in our troubles so that we can then in turn comfort 
those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Christians aren't immune from hard stuff. Surprised I didn't get an amen on that one, to be honest with you. But we're not. The Apostle Paul wasn't immune from hard stuff. I mean, if you're judging your Christian walk and, and how much God loves you by whether or not you had a good day or a bad day, you're going to lose every time and you're going to be frustrated. That's the wrong measurement. That's the wrong measurement. Talk to the Apostle Paul about that. All but one of the original disciples were, were martyred for Jesus. You want to talk about having a hard day. It's a hard day. Christians aren't immune from the hard stuff, but Christians, we have something that this world doesn't have. We have comfort from God. In fact, God himself, the Holy Spirit who has indwelled us, who is living inside of us, he's called the comforter. We have the comforter living within us. Bringing us comfort, showing us and pouring out the compassion of the creator of the universe as we're walking through a tough world, a messy world. And so we have that. And because we have that, we're encouraged then to give that same compassion and comfort to others because, y'all, the world is hurting. And when we not only receive compassion and comfort from God, but then release it to others. And they don't have to be Christians, by the way, okay? Just anybody. We release the comfort and the compassion that we've received to God to others. I'm telling you, that's when people come face to face with the kingdom of heaven and the love of God. Check this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says he's writing this letter with anguish and tears. Anguish and tears. Why? Again, because the church that Paul started, the church that he poured his life into was disregarding and disrespecting him. How did that happen? Well, these people who received so much from him Paul goes off to pour into other people, and who shows up? Some dynamic, well-spoken, slick preachers showed up. I'm, I'm going to make some kind of shooting from the hip analogies here. I mean, th does, has this happened to any of you as you've raised your children? Seriously, where you've poured so much into them. You've poured truth and the love of God and, and all compassion and care and all of this. And then they go out into the world and they're enamored by all the lights and all the sounds and all the, 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 the slick, you know, famous people who, who then pump them full of all different ideas and thoughts about what life is all about. Maybe, maybe you've experienced that. This is the kind of thing that Paul was dealing with. This is the kind of thing that was going on in the church at Corinth at that time. They had been given a firm foundation of Christ and Christ alone. They've been, they've been poured into with love and compassion and grace. Somebody that would walk alongside of them 
as they're stubbing their toe and being foolish as Christians and talking over each other in their services and stepping on each other's toes, all that kind of stuff. And Paul's been patient with them, walking them through all of this. And then he goes off to minister to others and these slick, well-spoken preachers show up in Corinth and they started talking bad about Paul. And saying, Paul, he's just a fickle guy. Read about that in, in chapter 1, verse 17. He, he's, just a, he's fickle. He lacks the proper credentials. We, we have so much more credentials than he does. The first part of chapter 3 shows these guys talking about that, right? They even criticized him because he was poor. He had to do side work from time to time. Make tents and stuff like that. And why do you want to listen to somebody if he's so good? Why didn't he have speaking, paid speaking engagements all over the place? I mean, we're paid speakers. We're, we're, I mean, people pay to hear us. They don't pay to hear Paul. Well, that's because Paul didn't charge for the gospel. And then they say, hey, Paul, he's not dynamic. He's not charismatic enough as a preacher. They even called him a weakling. What did Paul do? I like this about Paul, by the way. He called them out. He did. Paul called this church out. And he said that their elevation of these slick leaders, these super dynamic, amazing, you know, wordsmith preacher guys was actually a betrayal, not of him, but a betrayal of Jesus as it unearthed a distorted value system in their lives. They were elevating the wrong things. They were following the wrong things. They got their eyes once again on all the the glitter that man can provide and throw out there. And their eyes were actually pulled away from Jesus in the process. And so Paul gives him a good slap, a good spiritual spanking right here. And he clarifies that the true Christian leadership isn't about status, isn't about the number of followers that you have, the size of your church. It's not about self-promotion. Rather, true Christian leaders are captive slaves to King Jesus. And Paul's job says that a true Christian leader's responsibility isn't to get people to follow them, but rather to point people to the one they should follow, and his name is Jesus. How we look for leaders is important, and are we looking for Christian leaders who are pointing us to Jesus or that are pointing us to their YouTube channel? I mean, seriously. Are we looking for Christian leaders who are going to do the hard lifting and say the hard things and walk us through the hard times with Jesus? Or are we looking for people who are going to tickle our ears and same thing was going on back in the days of Corinth with the Apostle Paul that I, I see it, it happens today. I mean, we're in a consumer. This is just all about consumerism. Paul's dealing with, with, with early church version of consumerism. 
And then Paul talks about the kind of credentials that God wants. Check this out. And this is in 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 2. You know, rather than saying, hey, you know, looking for credentials like here's the degrees and the diplomas and all the big places and the, all the, the, the fancy ministry kind of cred that I have and all that, Paul says that you yourselves are our letter. He's saying, you, church in Corinth, you people who used to be lost, who are now walking with Jesus, you people who used to be in darkness, slaves to sin, who are now walking in freedom. I'm paraphrasing as you're looking at the scripture. I'm, I'm just saying, this, this, is, this is what he's saying. You, you people, you the church, you're our letter. You're our credentials written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You, church, show that you are a letter from Christ. You're the result of our ministry. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Just think about this. Your life is so sweet to the Lord. Your life speaks of the power of Jesus who was able to take somebody out of the pit of death and darkness and bring you into the marvelous light. By the way, this passage right here in, in 2 Corinthians 3, it's a, it's a reference to Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 about how God has written his spirit on our hearts. And if you have the spirit of the living God written on your heart, that's credential enough. That is credential enough. And so Paul takes the opportunity to lay out the differences then as we go through 2 Corinthians. And he lays out the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. And talks about how the new covenant, God is now transforming people to be more like him. See, the old covenant was effective. But there was a limit to it. For instance, when you went and you, you sacrificed you know, your, your best cow or goat or bird or whatever it is that you brought to the altar to have sacrificed, you walked away with your sins forgiven, but you didn't walk away changed. You didn't walk away with a new heart and a power now to live for God that you didn't have before. You walked away forgiven. And this is why Jesus came, because we need to be new creations. The old man needs to be dead and buried and gone. And God understood that, and so he sent the lamb, his son Jesus, who when his blood was spilled for us, not only do we have forgiveness and a cleansing from our sins and from our past and from who we were, but we become now alive as new creations, transformed, being taken from glory to glory now. It's all been Change. It says in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed now into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, Paul is drilling home the truth that the cross turns the world's perspective of success and what it's all about on its head. 
So we're being transformed, but we're being transformed because of the cross. And the cross has a little bit different perspective on what success looks like, doesn't it? The cross didn't look like success. The cross was the example of that day of the very antithesis of success. It was failure. Complete failure. And humiliation. How many of you know God's ways are different than our ways? God's way of measuring is way different than our way of measuring. See, Christ wasn't necessarily glorified because of his success. He was glorified through his suffering and death. See, the cross reveals that God's way is self-giving and self-sacrificing and suffering, not self-promoting and self-enriching. This is the way of Jesus, and we're going to see that. Paul is dealing with some folks that this church was getting their their way of measuring Christian success. It was off base, and they were looking once again to the measurements of the world, and we so easily do that as the church today. It's so easy to fall back in it and go back to, to defining success by how the world defines success. I mean, we... We struggle with that as a board here at the church. We want to be good stewards. We, we process, you know, and look at all the metrics. How's attendance going? How's giving going? What are the different age groups? How are we doing in that? What, um, the ministry, how many people are engaged? What's happening? And we look at all these metrics. And sometimes, frankly, we look at the metrics and we just think, we're failing. Why isn't there more? Why isn't there more? Why isn't there more? Then one of our board members speaks up, Tom, I'm going to throw his name out there. He says, are we measuring the right things? How are the marriages in our church? Oh my goodness, strong. And if your marriage isn't strong, we're here to come alongside of you because God has everything you need to be 100% successful in your marriage. And he's placed you right here in this fellowship because you have brothers and sisters who are going to come along, not, not, not judge you and, and push you away, but, man, come alongside of you and help lift you up, man. We're going to be your best cheerleaders. How are the kids in this church doing? How, are they walking with Jesus? When they leave and, and graduate high school, they go off in the big bad world, are they getting sucked into all the trash or are they lights in the midst of darkness? Praise God. We see what God is doing. And so how are we measuring success? Paul was dealing with a church who was measuring success the way the world measures success instead of the way the kingdom of heaven measures success. One precious soul at a time. Amen. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, so fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It's not what we think we're going to achieve on this side. We need to have our focus on what we will receive on the other side. There's a saying, I'm just being, I'm recalling this. There's a saying that, the one who dies with the most wins, 
That's like exactly the opposite of what God would say. The one who dies with the least, the one who has put it all out there and poured it all out is the one who wins. That's who wins. That's who wins. Let's go to point number two. This is the second kind of section that you're going to find in, in 2 Corinthians. I've titled it Christian Giving. So we got Christian Living, the first four chapters. The second two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, um, are all about Christian giving. See, what, what was going on? The Christians in Jerusalem were going through a hard time. There was a famine in Jerusalem, and the church was hit hard. But wait a minute. I'm just thinking about this right now. When bad stuff happens in the world, isn't the church supposed to be, like, immune from bad stuff happening? Y'all read the Bible, okay? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Both the good and the bad. We live in a broken world. The good news is, is that we have Christ in us, who's our comfort, who sustains us, who lifts us up in the midst of hard times, okay? Again, don't judge your relationship with God and how good God is based on whether or not you're going through a good time or a bad time. Don't do that. Don't do that. You'll be disappointed every single time. So the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, the one that started this whole New Testament church that we're part of today, right? They were suffering during this famine that was going on, and they were hit hard. So hard that the apostle Paul said, hey, you other churches out there, you Gentile churches, you gotta, we got to come alongside of our brothers and sisters. They need help. This is our time to shine. This is our time to show the world what the body of Christ is all about. So Paul was on a mission to raise money from churches that he'd started. Again, mostly non-Jewish churches. And they were sending relief funds to show unity in Christ. By the way, we do the same thing with the church over in Ghana. When our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ghana are dealing with something that we usually don't deal, we don't deal with it here. We don't deal with famine right now. We're not dealing with, with being financially broke as the body of Christ, having nothing and people in our congregation starving right now. The Lord has blessed us financially. But when our brothers and sisters in, in Ghana, Africa are struggling and they need some help, we're going to send them relief. Because they're our brothers and sisters. They're our family. If I would do that for my son or my daughter, I would do that for my brothers and sisters in Ghana. And so this is what was going on here. So Paul is on a mission to raise some funds to help the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, those faithful saints who had gone through so much. You remember the diaspora that happened, that scattering of the saints because there was persecution that was going on in Jerusalem? Well, God used it and he launched the church to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth as a result of, of hard times. Notice again, I think there's a common theme that's just jumping out at us here today. When bad stuff happens, it doesn't mean that God's not in it. It just means that God is going to use it for his glory. And can we trust him and walk with him through whatever that hard time is and watch him do what God does, and that's expand his kingdom. And we get to be part of it. So that's what, that's what happened. That's why there's churches in Corinth and Galatia and, and, and Samaria and all these different places because hard times were going on in Jerusalem. And you had faithful saints though, who remained in Jerusalem in the midst of that. 
I know I'm going off on tangents here, but, but you know, how many of you have a bug out plan? Like when all, everything falls apart here and you're like, I got a place I'm going and I'm out of here and I'm all that. And I think that's fine. There's going to be some who are going to be called to scatter if things go crazy here in our country. Okay, whatever. I'm not getting all conspiracy and weird, but I'm just saying that it's weird and crazy. But, but so that may be the case. But then there are others who are going to be called to stay in the midst of the chaos in a metropolitan area. We're going to be called to stay and endure, and minister, and be the church in a hard situation. And that's what these people in Jerusalem were. They were the church in a hard situation, going through persecution with Nero and all that. Now they're dealing with famine. And Paul's saying, can you help a brother out? And most of these congregations, like the ones in Macedonia and Galatia, they were thrilled to give, but the Corinthians were reluctant and Paul finds out, man, you, you haven't been saving up anything since I sent you that last letter. You didn't make it a priority. You're not others focused. And Paul says, this is revealing something very deep and concerning about you. It's a red flag. It's indicating that the Corinthians hadn't been transformed by the gospel. And that's a, that's a strong statement, isn't it? Their lack of generosity with brothers and sisters suffering, was an indication that they hadn't fully embraced the gospel. After all, the gospel at its core is a story. It's an act from God of generosity. That's what it is. And so Paul writes to them in, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know it, that, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul's using a money metaphor here to talk about something much deeper. He's saying Jesus gave up his honor. Jesus gave up his wealth on the cross so that we who are impoverished in sin might become spiritually and eternally rich through his grace. And as you read chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, this is what's going to jump, I believe, jump off the page at you. If we're not generously giving, then we're not Jesus living. Let me say that again. If we're not generously giving, we're not Jesus living. In other words, if we're not generous and we're stingy, we're not living like Jesus. Our generosity is tangible evidence that we've truly embraced the gospel. Our generosity is tangible measurement of our love for what Jesus loves. And in this case, he's saying that's love for the church, for fellow brothers and sisters, for the body of Christ, for his bride. We don't talk a lot about money here at Evident Life Church. It's just another way that we glorify God and, and, and surrender to him and worship him with our everything that we are. We don't Knock on doors, where's the tie? We don't do that. We don't pass plates even here at Evident Life Church. But I will tell you, God has been so good and this church is generous. But I do want to tell you, if you struggle giving to the body of Christ, check yourselves. If you struggle giving to your local church, check your heart and check your understanding of God's perspective and what he thinks of the local church, which is his bride. And remember, it's, it's all his. It's all his. 
So to be a Christian is to be generous. All right, point number three, final point here is, so we got Christian living, we got Christian giving. Best I could come up with for the title of point number three is Christian winning. Christian winning. How many of you like the sound of that, though? Christian winning, chapters 10, 11, and 12. So, look. So Paul, you're going to see, has had a big issue with these apostles, these preachers that had come to town. We'd just been talking about them, right? These, these slick dudes that just supposedly had it all together, that dressed in those really cool, you know, hipster kind of outfits of the day and just said it just right, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and Paul actually made fun of them and he called them super apostles. Oh, well, I'm sorry, I'm not one of those super apostles apostles, you know, who's all that, you know, and okay. But here's the deal. These slick preachers, we, we, I already said it though, they were mesmerizing the believers in Corinth. And they gained all that popularity, their influence by promoting themselves and bad-mouthing the apostle Paul. He's old-fashioned, he's not hip, he's poor, all this kind of stuff. He's, you know, you don't need to listen to him anymore, you know, let us, let us show you how, how, to, how to be a cool Christian and, and, and all this kind of stuff. I will tell you this. Paul could have taken these, these super apostles head on. He could have thrown them into the MMA octagon or whatever that thing is, and he could have had them tapping out in no time. I mean, he could have bloodied them up so bad and so fast that it I mean, he could have. He could have. And what's interesting is you read 2 Corinthians, he kind of started going there a little bit. You know, he said, and he kind of used it this way. Well, I could say, you know, well, I'm better, blah, 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 blah. and then he's like, "What am I doing, man? What am I doing?" I love. You're gonna love reading Second Corinthians. It's like you're getting in the head of a guy who just wants to rip somebody else's head off because of the way they're treating him, and you're getting to hear and read how he's processing all that, but how in the end he turns it all back to Jesus and says, "Okay." It's all you, Jesus. I mean, it's an, ex it's an exciting letter to read, y'all. You know, I, and I think 2 Corinthians very seldom is read through and really understood. We get, we get little passages that we pull out from here and there in 2 Corinthians, and we miss that big thing of how do we deal, how do, how can, what can we learn from the Apostle Paul, from the Holy Spirit, on how to deal when people just aren't treating us fairly and right? And maybe that never happens to anybody else here. But it happens to me. And I've been reading 2 Corinthians for the last couple weeks through and through. And it only takes 35, 40, 45 minutes, whatever, at max, 45 minutes. And I'm just like, yeah, Paul. Amen. Paul decides though, to take the high road in the end. And he wants to turn everybody's attention back to Jesus. Y'all, that's what we need to be doing, always. Whatever the struggle, whatever wrestling match we're in, whatever we're going through, good, bad, and ugly, in the end, may we leave that, that discussion, that meeting, that employer, that relationship, whatever it be, may we leave pointing people to Jesus. Amen. May that be our goal with any relationship we have, whether it's with your barber, or with your best friend, or with your worst enemy. May we leave pointing people to Jesus. And that's 
what Paul was doing here. And how did he do it? By bragging about his personal weakness. In the midst of, of people talking bad about him, and this church going along with it, he ends up saying, you know what? I'm going to brag about my weakness instead of boasting in my strength. And I'm also going to brag about God's strength. And he says in 1130, he says, if I boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You see, contrary to popular belief, it's not the strongest or the most articulate who wins in the end. It just isn't. Rather, it's the most humble, obedient, faithful, and Christ-like who wins and ultimately inherits the kingdom of heaven. That's who wins. I said it before, the one who dies pouring out the most of themselves and the most Jesus and the most that they've received from God, that's the one who wins, not the one who stored it all up for themselves. And while others are flexing their strength, Christians are called to flex our weakness. You're like, that doesn't feel right. I know. I know. But God's ways are not our ways. Paul writes in 12.10, he says, This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. By the way, our weaknesses that we're supposed to flaunt or boast is not our sin. Sin is sin. You need to walk in victory over that sin, and you can because of the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus and the grace that's been given to you that teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a godly, upright life in this present age, Titus 2, 11 through 13. That, 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 so our weakness is not our sin. We are not to boast about our sin or flaunt our sin. We're to repent and give it to God and trust him and grab hold of his grace every single day. And when we fall, we get up and we grab hold of, of, of Jesus's hand and we say, let's walk in victory once again. See, Paul is talking about our weakness as our humility, being humble. It's, it's, it's living from that place of Jesus is God and I'm not. God is God and I'm not. I can't save myself. I can't set myself free. But I know the one who can and has saved me and has set me free. His name is Jesus. And I will boast on him. And I'll point people to him. And this is one more thing. Christians don't win by fighting like the world. You're going to find this truth in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. It says, for though we live in the world, how many of you live in the world? How many are you excited about that? I don't know about that. But anyway, how, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does, which is interesting. Let me just stop here. We're in a war. Okay? We're in a war. And it's for all the marbles. The devil wants to come, kill, rob, and destroy. He wants to take you out. He wants you dead. He wants you dead in your sin. He wants you ultimately dead, physically and spiritually. He wants your children dead, physically and spiritually. And he's going all out to do that. Don't be naive. When you're in a war, 
You have to know you're in a war, and then you have to act like you're in a war. We battle not against flesh and blood. We're not in a war against people who are, who are bound up in sin and hurting and doing stupid things because of that. that that's not our enemy. Our enemy is principalities of darkness. The devil, the, the, the schemes of the enemy of darkness, that's our enemy that we're fighting against. And it's no joke. So the weapons that we use in this war that we are in, that we need to grab hold of and use, Paul is saying that, that these weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. How many of you can say amen to that? Yes, thank you, Jesus, for that. I'm reminded of 2 Peter 1.3. We've been given all we need for life and godliness. We've been given every weapon that we need to win this war. You have it at your disposal if you're in Christ Jesus. You have what you need to walk in freedom and to beat that sin ultimately. It may be overnight. It may be a little bit longer process than that. But you have all you need to win that war. You know, some wars could take one day. Other wars, other battles take years. But we fight through it all. And we never give up. And we never settle. And we don't wave the truce, you know, sign. No, we don't do that. And the weapons that we fight with, they have the power. Not from ourselves or from some super anointed spiritual leader in the church. No, they have heavenly power straight from the grace of Jesus Christ to demolish every one of those strongholds that wants to take us down. See, our warfare is spiritual. We don't measure success by numbers, money, or outward growth. Our weapons are secret. They are mighty. I read something this week. It says this. It said that the word of God is the secret weapon. We live in a world that's full of lies. That's probably the biggest thing that's coming after us right now as a culture, lies. Here's our secret weapon. It's a word of truth. We have the truth. Okay, so the, the, the saying that I read goes like this. The word of God is the secret weapon. The Holy Spirit is the general and prayer is the ammunition. Amen? Amen. And notice where the strength comes from comes all from the Lord. The victory is ours because the battle is the Lord. The world says that it's the strong who will survive. But you know what? In God's kingdom, the Bible says that it's actually the weak who will win this battle. Because we are humble enough to lean into the one who has already won the battle for us. You see how that works? Paul's final message in this letter is serious and it's sobering. In chapter 13. Paul writes to this church Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. I said that's serious and sobering. I appreciate that God is serious and sober with us. God wants us to win. He poured it all out. 
so that we would. Beloved, our actions and our beliefs reveal our hearts and they reveal our spiritual condition. They just do. Test yourself. What are you trusting in? What are you hoping for? What are you investing in? Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Where do you place your value, your hope? Is it in worldly financial success and wealth? Is that what you're striving for? I mean, is that the most important thing, the biggest thing, the most prominent thing on on the plate of your life is your financial success and wealth? Test yourself. Seriously, it's not that wealth and success isn't bad. It's not bad at all. But Jesus has to be number one. The advancing of the kingdom of heaven, not our own kingdom, has to be number one in our lives. It really does. We die. If we take up our cross and embrace life in the spirit, then we, like Paul, will experience this transformed life and we will win. I'm going to close now and just say that y'all are in for a great week. As you read 2 Corinthians, you read it from that perspective and that context, and you, you just get to hear Paul's heart and God's heart just jump off the pages. And I believe it's going to minister to you. I believe it's going to heal some, some woundedness and some brokenness in your life. I, I think it's going to help, help us learn how to handle disappointments better and navigate those things. And, and I know that it's going to get our eyes fixed on where they need to be, and that's on Jesus. Whatever it is, whether you're on a mountaintop right now, whether you're in a valley, whether you feel like you're just taken off for glory, or whether you just feel like you're free-falling you know, into the pit of despair, whatever it may be, I'm telling you, Read through this letter in its entirety this week. I know that I encourage this, and I know this can be difficult at times, but I mean, one sitting, just reading it through in one sitting, you get the full impact and richness just, boom, hit you and just pour over you in such a powerful way. God has some work he's going to do in your life as you read through 2 Corinthians.